Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Desire of the world to get here, why? Because even as things are more difficult for us than they've ever been, this is still the land of opportunity. And it really is that because of the freedom that the gospel brought, that the power of, of a declaration that all men were created, not just evolved equal, because certainly if we evolved, we wouldn't be equal. Today's broadcast, we begin a new two-part message that Pastor Sam has entitled, The Power of God. We're in the middle of Luke chapter 4, and we will begin today in verse 31. The last half of Luke 4 looks at events where Jesus casts out demons and heals many, so let's jump in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 4. We're picking up at verse 31 and working our way to the end of the chapter, Luke 4, 31 through 44 title of our study, The Power of God. Luke 4, 31, then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves saying, what a word this is for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place into the surrounding region. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with the high fever. Then they made request of him concerning her, so he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Uh, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. We looked last time at Jesus' mission statement. We see this time Jesus fulfilling the very things he claimed the Father sent him to do. The very things Isaiah 61 prophesied the Messiah, the Savior, would be doing. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That was his declaration because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So we're seeing Jesus here in the latter part of Luke doing exactly what he said in the last portion we considered he would be doing. Setting the captives free, healing the oppressed and, and sick multitudes. And, and so it's important to know Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is able to do today what he did in that day. We read, first of all, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. It began with his rejection in Nazareth. He moved and established his new mission base here in Capernaum, and he continued to teach in the synagogues in the Sabbaths and on the Sabbaths. Now, in addition to preaching the good news, we find Jesus' primary ministry was teaching. He'd find his way into a synagogue. The synagogue service always began, as we shared last time, with the Shema here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So wherever he went, wherever he was gathered together with God's people, they would begin the day with that declaration. We're worshiping and serving the one true and living God. And this is what we covered last time. And that God, his heart, his desire, our God, the true and living God is that we would love him with all our heart and soul and with all our strength. It's the greatest commandment. And later we learn it is the fulfillment of all the rest. Why? Well, if we're loving God with all that's in us, then we don't need the thou shall not worship idols or make idols or thou shall not take the Lord's name in vain. We don't need the thou shall nots if we have the thou shall. If we're loving him, we're not going to be doing those things. The second commandment, he said, is like it. And that's to love our neighbor as ourself. And it covers the same territory. In these two, he says, all the rest are fulfilled. Why? Because I'm not going to steal from or lie to or take advantage of people I love. So the key isn't just knowing what we're not to do, but what we're to do in order to make sure we're not going down that other road. Now, in Deuteronomy 6, where that great declaration comes from, it goes on to say, and you shall, well, these words that I command you shall be in your heart. It's important. The idea was that they would memorize the word of God and meditate on the word of God. So when they were challenged or tempted or tested or tried, the word of God would already be there in their heart, on their tongue, in their mind. They'd know exactly what God would want them to do in any given situation. And then it goes on to say, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is so important. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. And that's why I'm bringing it to your attention. He's gathering with the children of God, his family, you see. And he's teaching them formally, diligently. And then when they leave the synagogue service, he does what goes on to say in Deuteronomy 6. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. It's that informal instruction that, well... You know, his disciples would follow him out of the synagogue service. Then they'd begin to say, hey, 
could you explain something to us or what did you mean by that or could you clarify this? And so the best teaching wasn't just the, the precepts that were laid down in the synagogue, but the application that came after. And I found as someone who's raised boys and nieces and nephews and, and extended family, that, that the best teaching opportunities, though we're charged fathers especially to, to follow Jesus' example and obey Deuteronomy 6 to teach formally that the best teaching times are those informal times where we take the principles of Scripture and say, well, this is exactly why God says this is exactly what Jesus meant because on the playground or at school or in the neighborhood, that's where we get to put into practice, well, those very things. Now, of course, our kids are going to be challenged if you're raising them. So you want to teach them. The word needs to be in you and make sense to you. Then you pass it on to them. You're planting the good seed of truth in their hearts. And then you're teaching them formally. You're instructing them informally. And then finally, Deuteronomy 6, 9 or 8 and 9 said, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be frontlets between your eyes. You'll write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. Interesting, as we celebrate July 4th this weekend, the, the freedom that millions and millions have found here in the United States. People are still coming here from everywhere and anywhere that it's an overwhelming desire of the world to get here. Why? Because even as things are more difficult for us than they've ever been, this is still the land of opportunity. And it really is that because of the freedom that the gospel brought. The, the power of, of a declaration that all men were created not just evolved equal, because certainly if we evolved, we wouldn't be equal. And what's equal between me and Michael Jordan and, you know, with what he could do and what I could do? There's no equality in the natural. Our equality is in the supernatural. And it's interesting at a time, it says in Deuteronomy, you should bind them and you should publish them. And at a time where people in high places are saying, well, no more... God's word in the school and no more God's word in the mall and no more God's word on your lawn if it offends your neighbor at your nativity scene that the very people that are saying no more of that they sit in places where when they shut the doors the Ten Commandments are on the back of the doors and all over Washington D.C. The word of God is etched in stone. I mean, you would need full-time sandblasters from now until we're out of the scene to get rid of all of it. It just isn't going anywhere. The founding fathers were pretty smart guys. They're like, let's etch it in the stone. That way nobody can paint over it or wash it off. Or... And so all over, God's word was originally and remains today published wherever, well, this has been obeyed. And, and so here's what happens. Jesus comes in. He begins to teach. He's teaching on the Sabbaths. He's fulfilling Deuteronomy 6. And then it says in verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching for his word was with authority. Most of you are aware there was a 400 year gap from the close of the Old Testament until John the Baptist stood in the wilderness saying, repent 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while John the Baptist, of course, has recorded for us his ministry in the New Testament, he is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. The law and the prophets we read were unto John. So John comes in the wilderness and, and he begins to speak with authority. And then he points people to Jesus after saying, hey, there is another coming after me who is so great. I'm not worthy to even untie his shoelaces, we would say today, or untie his or unfasten his sandals, as they would have said and done in that day. John just saying there's one so much greater coming. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he begins to do what no one in that day was doing, speaking with authority. For that 400 year period between Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, well, and even prior to it, the normal synagogue service, and we looked at this in some detail last time, would have com been comprised of the Shema. And there would have been readings from various portions of Scripture, the, the Torah, first five books of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets and such. There would be teaching on some of those. But when people taught, they would either quote the commentaries that were were um, built by those who spent all their time in the word, the scribes who tried to define, well, what did he mean by we're not supposed to work? What does he mean by bearing a burden? So they'd quote the commentaries or they would quote the more popular rabbis. But no one was doing what Jesus began to do. And that was just say, well, you know how he taught. He'd say, you've heard it has been said, but I say unto you. He wasn't quoting the commentaries. He wasn't quoting the rabbis. He was actually saying, I know you've heard these things, but let me tell you how it really is. And it blew them away. They're like, hey, you got to hear this guy teach. He's teaching like he actually has authority in the things He's proclaiming and, and we're told they were astonished by that. It was so unfamiliar to them. His word was with authority. Later on, by the way, the, uh, the powers that be will send some of the local police to go and arrest Jesus. And you kind of have to put yourself in the scene to fully appreciate what takes place. It would be like, Someone in our police force sending some cops to come down and say, you're speaking down in the park, uh, you know, for sake of argument. And, and uh, you know, you're just down there preaching the gospel. And they say, go down and arrest that guy. You know, he said, rabble rouser, a troublemaker. And, and so they come back without the prisoner. And there's like, where's the guy we sent you to arrest? And they're like, no one ever spoke like this guy. You should hear him. He's amazing. That we laugh because, man, that just seems like so unlikely. That's exactly what was happening. When he spoke in the synagogues, people were blown away. And when he taught in the streets and they came to arrest him, they couldn't even remember why they came. All they knew is they were so radically impressed and blessed by the things our Lord was teaching. You remember, of course, the prophets of old came saying, thus says the Lord. I've shared with you in the past, but I feel compelled to remind you. You can even help me on this. Jesus never says, thus says the Lord. Why not? He was and is the Lord. That's right. 
He is the Lord. He doesn't have to say, thus says the Lord. He says, I say unto you. In fact, if you read through John's gospel, he'll say again and again, I am. And uh, referring back to God's interaction with Moses, when Moses was first called and said, well, who shall I say sent me? Say, he says, tell them I am sent you. It's I am, I was, I am, and I will be. It speaks in all three tenses of the uh, amazing, wonderful, true and living God we serve. Well, as creator of all things, we see him moving from authority in his teaching to authority over the realm of fallen angels. Now, they're described for us and called in the New Testament demons. But when you read about demons, we're not just talking about someone who was ill mentally and, and they thought maybe there was something going on spiritually. We're talking about actual demonic forces that were... Well, controlling people. And uh, I don't believe Christians can be possessed by demons. But I do know Christians can be and are oppressed by demons. And in the sense that, well, a demon and the demons were angels that fell with Satan. That's clear from the Old and New Testament. A third of the angels fell with Satan. God calls them demons. And um, those demons, well, they follow his whole MO. They come, as he does, to steal, to kill, and destroy. They work primarily through lies and deception. We'll see in a moment our Lord muzzling a demon who testifies that he's the Holy One of Israel. And we'll have to deal with, well, why wouldn't he want that getting out? Well, just because it's true doesn't mean he wants to hear it from the lips of someone in rebellion to him. And by the way, this is how the cults operate. They'll say, we believe Jesus. We believe he's the son of God. We believe that he died for our sins, that he rose again. We believe this and this. And we'll say, well, then we, we have a lot in common. But then they begin to tell you what they don't have in common with you. I think it was Warren Wiersbe who first said they have the, the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. So even when they're saying the same thing, we believe they don't mean the same thing by it. Well, in any case, here's his authority over creation, over the fallen angels. Colossians by the one says all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus and in him all things consist. So in verse 33, in the synagogue, a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, a little later on, a demon is going to testify that he is the Christ, the Son of God. It's in this very chapter. And I want to tell you, this is three years before Peter ever has that revelation. So how did the demons know who Jesus was? He made them and they recognized him. Satan knew who he was. The demons knew who he was. And they know that Jesus has power over them. That's why, did you come to destroy us? Well, first back up with me for a moment. 
It's the Sabbath. In the same way and for the same reasons, we've come together here on Sunday, and this is the difference. They were meeting on the Sabbath. It, it went from Friday night at sunset to Saturday night at sunset. That becomes important because after sunset, we're going to see all sorts of people bringing all sorts of needy people to the Lord. But, but they were worshiping from that sundown uh, to, to uh, the next sundown. That's their Sabbath. And they were doing that because it was the seventh day. It was the day of rest. Uh, we're gathered here on uh, the uh, first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection. We'll be sharing in communion, his death, burial, and resurrection. If you have friends or family and they're hung up on Saturday's the right day to worship, well, we have a service on Saturday too. So uh, not to cover the bases, but because it's just a good idea to offer as many opportunities to serve and worship as we can. But, but here's the deal. They come together as we do for praise, for prayer, for instruction. And this demon-possessed man joins them. Now, the demon's controlling the man and speaking through him. But he's there to disrupt the worship service. And Jesus, of course, knows that. And, and there's this, well, he says, we. It says, he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? Now, someone has suggested that, that um, that's because there were other demon-possessed people there. And that's possible. But I think it's probable that, that this demon, because demons are all about deception, had convinced this man that, that uh, Jesus was a danger to both of them. And again, all you have to do is go back to Jesus' mission statement. He's very clear. He's here to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. He was there to free and bless the man, but definitely to deal with the demonic force that had controlled him. And, and so he just says, let us alone. What do we have to do with you? And then he says, I know who you are. And he testifies, the Holy One of God. Now, this is the first notable miracle here in Luke's gospel. He actually records 22 of the 37 miracles that are recorded for us in the gospel. We might want to include the, that time where they tried to throw him off the cliff and he just walked through their midst. I mean, you've got to try that to know that that's probably pretty miraculous in and of itself. But this is something that, while that might be able to be explained in the natural this is absolutely supernatural in its origin and, and uh, in what takes place. So uh, there are 37 miracles recorded in the Gospels. 22 of them are recorded in Luke's Gospel. Three of the four encounters with demons are here in Luke's Gospel. Now, again, they not only recognize Jesus, they testify of his authority over them. And, and they acknowledge almost in every case they know he's come to be their judge. The, the issue has to do with timing. In fact, when he deals with Legion, it's like, are you going to destroy us before the time? The question here is, are you going to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? And, and so it's important to take note of this. It doesn't mean to annihilate them. It means to put them out of business, to put an end to their reign of deception and terror. And that he certainly 
is going to do. So Jesus does two things. Verse 35, first he rebukes him. And hold on to that word because we're going to see it again and again and again as we go through this gospel. He rebukes him. And uh, it's an interesting word. This word for rebuke actually means to muzzle him. He says, be quiet. You know, he rebukes him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Now, remember, this is just a demon, but we're told of Satan that he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I like this picture to be like Satan coming after you, but he's got a muzzle. It makes him a little less threatening. But not only that, I guess you'd have to deal with the claws if we're going to stay with the entirety of the illustration. But, but the, the point is he first silences him, be muzzled, and then he commands him to come out of the man. He silences him and he cast him out. And when the demon had thrown him in the midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now this authority includes authority over the word of God, as Jesus is the one who wrote it. Now Philippians 2.16 calls the word of God the word of life. So we need to recognize that Jesus is the ultimate authority over everything in our lives, and not just everything in our lives, but literally the entire universe. And it is within his word that we are shown how we are to yield to that authority through obedience to his word. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.